Hello, and welcome to Asbury Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Savini. I am the lead pastor here. I hope this episode will enrich your walk with Christ. I hope it will increase your knowledge of the Bible, which is really what it's all about. And I hope I can be at least a little bit entertaining as well. <clears throat> we are going to look at Isaiah today. Now, if you are worshiping with us on Sunday, I'm not preaching on the, the same books of the Bible that we are reading through in our current reading plan because we are doing uh, our yearly stewardship campaign. It's important enough, I feel like I need to kind of take a break from preaching through our reading plan to, to spend some time talking about what stewardship is and why it matters and, and why we do this every year. So for the month of October, that's what I'm preaching on, uh, which means these podcasts may be a, a bit more important uh, in your as like a companion for reading through these reading plans. Now, we've started a new reading plan called the Major Prophets. So you may not realize this, but the the prophetic books of the Old Testament, um, in the Protestant Bible at least, are organized into two groups. You have the Major Prophets and you have the Minor Prophets. So the Major Prophets, well, the, the Major Prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, believe Daniel is included in that, and I think maybe Malachi. Let me check. I have to double check this now because I've I've just staked quite a bit on it. I know those four. Okay, no, it's just gonna cut off of Daniel. So you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations is the other one I've forgotten there. Um, Ezekiel and Daniel. Lamentations, by the way, people assume typically it's written by Jeremiah, which is why it's thrown in there. Um, why are these the major prophets? Well, there are a couple reasons why we call them the major prophets. One, look at how long these books are. Um, Isaiah is 66 chapters. Jeremiah is 52 chapters. Plus, Lamentations gets tacked on because that's also his work. That's only five chapters, but it's Jeremiah's work. Ezekiel is 48. Daniel's only 12. So Daniel's actually the outlier here. But it, it gets thrown in for another reason, and that is that these particular prophetic texts are far and away the most influential, not just for us today, but also for the the original Jewish audience that read them. Um, these these particular books are enormously important for the Jewish theology of the Second Temple period, which is the Jewish theology of Jesus' day, right? The Second Temple is the one that's built after they return from the exile to Babylon. These prophets are hugely important for those people. Um, they are a core part of, of shaping their beliefs, which means you really, uh, I know I say this about every Old Testament book, but you, you have to read these books really to understand what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is doing, and what the other New Testament figures are saying and doing, because they are immersed in these books. By the way, people will, will fixate a lot on Isaiah, because Isaiah talks so much about the coming Messiah, it's often labeled the fifth gospel. And it's, I mean, there's good reason for all that. Um, Jeremiah is also massively, massively important, but Daniel, Daniel is shockingly influential. It might be, it's this, it's other than Lamentations, it's the smallest of the books. But in terms of the effect that it had, on the way that Second Temple era Jews saw the world and saw 
major world political events around them, I don't know that any of these books are more influential than Daniel. And, um, you know, Isaiah gets quoted a ton in, in the Gospels, but actually so does Daniel. Jesus quotes Daniel multiple times. Um, you know, he talks about this, this image, when he, he's, uh, I believe it's when he's on trial with uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he tells them that they will see the Son of Man, um, what is it, is it ascending on the clouds of heaven or something along those lines, um, to stand at the right hand of God? Well, that's a quote from Daniel 9. And by the way, it's really important we understand it's a quote from Daniel 9 because most if you don't understand it's a quote from Daniel 9, you completely misinterpret it. And that's how we get so much of the uh, absolutely bonkers end times theology going on that people don't recognize when Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. Um, we'll get into that later when we talk about Daniel. So, <laughs> um, so we're going to look at Isaiah today. Now, I am going to be teaching a Bible study on Isaiah later in the month. Okay, um, because it's it's such a, and I'm not using my own curriculum for that. I'm going to use um, the uh, Epic of Eden material created by uh, Dr. Sandra Richter for that, and uh, which is awesome stuff, by the way. So, um, you know, you you should definitely be here to to enjoy that. So it's going to be really awesome. I, I'm super excited to go through that material with people. Um, today, we're just going to look at the first couple of chapters of Isaiah, and, um, you know, hang on, i got to grab something here so that I can talk really briefly about some background. Isaiah is, um, if we go right here to the very beginning of the book, sometimes I forget how long Isaiah 1 actually is. Right, so Isaiah, son of Amos, very likely one of the priests in Jerusalem. Now Isaiah is a, the, it's written during two main time periods here. He starts, in fact, here, hold on, let me turn to Isaiah 6. Let me turn to Isaiah 6. So, so six chapters into Isaiah, this is kind of a weird out-of-order thing, but Isaiah's call story begins in chapter 6. So he's actually already prophesied for five chapters, but in chapter 6, we get this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. 
And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. So here's Isaiah's call story. And we'll go into what God actually tells him here uh, in a second. But um, first off, by the way, isn't this, I love this image, right? Woe to me, I am the man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is, by the way, this encapsulates the Old Testament idea of the fear of the Lord. Okay. Not so much terror that you're going to be punished, but this, this, this deep, deep recognition of our human fallenness and the glory and majesty and power of God. This deep recognition of our smallness and our weakness in the face of all that God is and does. It's just, so, uh, right, he's... he's I mean, it's just such a wonderful image, right? Here he is. Here's this vision of the Lord sitting on the throne. He sees God in all his majesty. The temple is filled with smoke, right? That's the incense burning on the altar, which I really, listen, y'all, I need to start burning incense in worship. I love not just the smell of the incense in worship, but also the, just the visual of the smoke rising to heaven. Really cool stuff. Um, but people would probably think I was getting all weird and Catholic if I did that. Maybe one day. Um <clears throat> So it's it's filled with the with with the smoke of the incense on the altar, all these holy magical m- mystical things going on, and instead of being excited or overjoyed, he goes, "Oh, dear God, I am not fit to be here." I remember um, not long, maybe a couple of years after we had moved to Dallas, and I took a job at a church, and. Um, now, y'all are familiar with the way that I typically dress, okay? I'm very casual, and in Corpus, that works fine, right? I mean, Corpus is a fairly casual city, uh, unless you are downtown at First Methodist, in which case you've got to be kind of stuck up and suited, but we're not there, right? Uh, we're, we're, so this, you know, the way I dress now is, is more or less the way I've always dressed. So I fit well in Corpus Christi, but uh, and that means I, I kept that up in Dallas when we were in seminary, and... Um, I remember we uh, we got invited to a wedding. It's the first wedding we went to up in Dallas, and um, it's also also like the first wed- like adult wedding we'd been to. Okay, I mean like we got married at age at twenty twenty two and twenty three, so very young. And we had a couple of friends who got married around that age. And you know when you're going to weddings and the, and the people getting married at that age and all their friends are that age, um, they're they're not particularly formal affairs. Okay, I mean. Because no one has the money to go buy nice clothes. So everyone dresses the way that I dress all the time at these weddings. Um, so we show up to this wedding, and it's like an actual grown-up wedding. right? And it's in Dallas, and Dallas is uh, not as casual as Corpus. But I dressed the way I typically dress. I had a button-down shirt on, you know, and, and it was a long-sleeve shirt, okay? Give me some credit. And I had slacks on, okay? I wasn't wearing shorts. I had real shoes on, not just sandals, okay? So, I mean... For me, that's pretty formal. Um, and every other man at that wedding was in a suit and tie. And I, I had this moment where I went, 
Oh, I don't belong in this room. <laughs> I am massively underdressed for this occasion. It was humiliating. My wife still makes fun of me for it to this day. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that's, you know, maybe not quite, the stakes aren't as high as what Isaiah is experiencing, but it's that, that same kind of feeling of he gets into this room and, and Isaiah is a priest. You know, he's, he's one of the temple priests, so he's, he has spent his adult life in the temple with the incense burning on the altar, offering up prayers for the people, offering up sacrifices. But when he's, he, and, and probably uh, recognizing that he is in the presence of God in the temple, but when, when all the veil is removed and he finally sees the fullness of the glory of God, he realizes, oh, Oh, I'm not fit to be here. And I mean, all his life, he probably thought he was because he was a priest and he worked in the temple. And now for the first time, he's beginning to realize all these things I did, the purity rituals and the sacrifices and all the things I did to purify myself and make myself ready for God's presence, none of them None of them can actually bridge the gap. I'm not fit to be here. Love that image. I, it's, it's, it really sticks with me. Because, you know, we, especially we Protestants, and, and especially, by the way, we Methodists, because our theology, our, our beliefs tend to focus on the love of God, right? And, and and the intimate presence of God, which is a good thing and a true thing, but sometimes we forget the awe, the majesty of God. <coughs> sometimes we forget that. We forget that we really ought to be in awe of the Creator, and we ought to recognize we are a people of unclean lips. That if we really saw the full majesty and glory of God, we would probably react like Isaiah reacts. Oh no. I should not be in this room. Not with this God. And then of course the angel comes and purifies him. And again, so it's only by the grace of God he is able to stand in the presence of God. So there's your little bit of New Testament creeping in to the Old Testament. This idea that by the grace of God, he can stand in the presence of God. This also, by the way, tells us when, when Isaiah starts his ministry. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now, let's back up for a second. Uh, Isaiah took the throne... I mean, not Isaiah. Uzziah. Uzziah. Uzziah ruled for a while. I'm trying to find where I wrote down the full length of his, uh, of his reign. I might have to Google it real quick. Yes, your pastor Googles answers. Um, okay. Uzziah reigned for roughly 52 years. Now, in light of the fact that we all know Queen Elizabeth reigned for like over 90, that doesn't sound like that much, but 
But actually, in the grand scheme of things, even in modern times, most monarchs don't reign for 52 years. In ancient Israel, none of them reigned for 52 years. Um, I don't even I don't even think that David and Solomon. Let me now I have to look this up. How long did David reign? Let's see if. Okay, so David, David reigns for forty years. Solomon reigns for forty years. So let that sink in. David and Solomon are widely regarded as the the golden age of Israel. They reigned for 40 years. And if you know anything about David's time as king, it's not a, it's not exactly a stable time. Uh, his One of his oldest sons rebels against him, and there is a civil war which racks the country, and he restores order eventually. Um, but it's not exactly a, a piece of time. Uzziah reigns for 52 years. He is the longest reigning monarch of Israel. And actually, he was a, a fairly good ruler. Perhaps not as faithful to God as David was, but, but overall, a fairly good ruler. He managed to keep the country peaceful and stable. Um, there, there's not a ton of conflict during his time. Um, actually, it's worth pointing out. Never mind, sorry. Um, the, the northern kingdom at that time was going through all kinds of um, turmoil and, and civil war and, and um, kings being assassinated and replaced by kings who then got assassinated and as they sort of spiraled out of control to be destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. But Uzziah brings peace and stability to the southern kingdom. And after 52 years on the throne, he dies. And the thing is, in the ancient world, as much as a monarch would try to ensure the peaceful transfer of power to their chosen heirs, it was very rare that a peaceful transfer of power actually happened. When a king dies, the whole country braces for turmoil and chaos. Because other people will try to seize the throne. So Isaiah's ministry begins in this time of incredible uncertainty and political turmoil. Uzziah dies about, in about 735 BC. So that's when Isaiah begins his ministry. And he will continue his ministry up through the reign of Hezekiah up through the reign of Manasseh. And he kind of continues on because you get to a point <coughs> it's unclear when you get to Isaiah 40 through the end of the book. Th those books are clearly written as, as um, God speaking to Israel in the midst of exile but but perhaps even uh, post-exile, when they are being returned home. It's not clear if, uh, if this is like somebody else has come along, because that, 
that would be about uh, not quite 200 years. Well, actually, no. It would be actually right on about 200 years after Isaiah began writing that they come back from exile. So, so Isaiah himself, if 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 chapter 40 through the end of the book are, are actually written towards the end of exile or after exile, Isaiah himself did not write them. But it's not clear if that's what happened or if Isaiah was just um, passing on God's own words about what's going to happen in the future. It's, but we know Isaiah, the, the prophet Isaiah, is active during the reigns of King Ahaz, who succeeds Uzziah, and King Hezekiah, who takes the throne 20 years after Ahaz in the year 715. Um, and there's some turmoil in there. The, the Assyrians, by the way, in, in 722 is when the Assyrians just destroy the northern kingdom and leave Judah alone, facing this massive superpower. Uh, 701 is when the Assyrians invade Judah, and there is some talk about that in the book of Isaiah, which is awesome. Not, not awesome because of the invasion, but awesome because there are also um, non-biblical historical records that corroborate the, the reports in the book of Isaiah. So, um, in other words, that's an event that we know that happened, and it's not just reported in the Bible, but we have the Assyrian records in there as well, and they mention Hezekiah by name in the Assyrian records. Um, so at the very least, Isaiah has a ministry spanning about 34, 35 years that we can date pretty accurately. His prophecies um, cover a time period of roughly 200 years. Because Ahaz, Uzziah dies in 735 and Ahaz, and Ahaz takes the throne. Um, that's 735 B.C. The Israelites will return from exile in 538 B.C. It's actually 203 years. Now, it's perfectly conceivable that Isaiah is alive to witness the rise of King Ahaz after Uzziah dies. It's perfectly plausible he's, he's maybe even alive to witness the, the, witness the Assyrian invasion. He, but he's not going to be alive to witness the Babylonian invasion because that would be well over a century after he begins his ministry. About 130 years after he begins his ministry is when it happens. Um, so this book covers a huge, huge span of time. And again, it's not totally clear if the prophecies later in the book that deal with the Babylonians and the exile and the return from exile are um, a prophetic word given to Isaiah by God about what will happen in the future, or if, uh, if other prophets simply add that on to the book later on. We don't know. And it's not really all that important. It's just an interesting fact. But we know he begins his ministry 735 B.C., the year that King Uzziah dies. He sees the Lord, and this is what God tells him. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I, Isaiah, said, How long, O Lord? 
And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes the people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. This is in 735. It is is roughly 138 years or so before the exile will happen, but God is already saying it's going to happen. Oops. Javi emailed me in the middle of my podcast, and you just heard the notification, so if you just blame Javi for that one. Um, 138 years, and God is saying the exile is going to happen. And here he is. He's telling Isaiah, look, you're going to go and talk to the people. You're going to give them my word. You're going to tell them my message. They're not going to listen. They will not listen to you. Understand what this means. Isaiah is called to fail. He's going to go. He's going to preach the word of God because the truth has to be preached. The word of God has to be preached. Every opportunity will be given to the people to turn from their ways, and it's going to fail. Now, here's there's a, there's a dichotomy in the Old Testament, okay, between um, the individual and the communal, the communal. The entire nation sins, and the entire nation will bear the punishment for their sins, even though there are individuals within the nation who are not sinning, who are faithful. Isaiah is one, Jeremiah will be one, Ezekiel will be one. And and to some extent, God will watch out for them, but they will also suffer along with their fellow countrymen because of the sins of the people. They might, like, suffer less, right? I mean, they, they but... You know, like Jeremiah doesn't get carried off into exile. But nonetheless, right? So there's this dichotomy between, yes, you as individuals can sin and bear responsibility for it. And you can also, you know, improve your fortunes by not sinning and by repenting. But the nation sins and the nation will suffer for it. And it appears that at this point, the nation has crossed the point of no return where God says, no, the only way to fix this now is with the exile. And that is a sobering thought. Now the the covenant that Israel had with God spells all this out. It spells out that there is communal responsibility for communal sin. It actually spells out that there is communal responsibility for individual sin. The new covenant with Jesus doesn't really include that. Um, it, it 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 really focuses much more on on your individual responsibility for your own behavior. However, it never it, the main reason for that is um, that there, there's that under the new covenant in, in in the world we live in from the new covenant onward, um, we God's people don't have the authority to hold everybody to God's standards. We do have the authority to hold our churches to God's standard. And we should do that. We should understand that. Um, you know, you look at things like what's happening in the Baptist church right now with their horrific sexual abuse scandals, and um, we ought to understand that God is going to judge that community for their communal sin. 
even though not every Southern Baptist is guilty of it and not every Southern Baptist is trying to cover it up and not every Southern Baptist is okay with it and people have left the Southern Baptist Church because of it, it's, they're, they're still going to be judged communally and, and we can watch and see what God's going to do because he does seem to take action in this life against stuff like that. Um, but one lesson we ought to take from the Old Testament is that God, like, like political events, military events, economic events, God can and does use these events to bring about his purposes in the world, right? The Assyrians and the Babylonians are evil, evil people. But God uses them first to carry out his judgment, and then he also judges them using other nations. Which means we can look at events in the world around us and begin to uh, wonder, okay, what is God doing here? What is he up to here? And what is the role of the church here? And where we find our role, one, is to be like Isaiah. Right? To, to preach the word of God to everyone. Whether they listen or not. To tell the truths of God to the world, whether the world listens or not. That's part one. Part two is to be Jesus. To be like Jesus to the world, Right? Because we don't have we don't have the ability to hold everyone to our moral standards anymore. Right? We don't live in a, in a theocracy. And God doesn't seem to want us to live in a theocracy. Otherwise, he might have arranged things for that to be possible, but he doesn't. Uh, in fact, the church seems to do best when it is living in hostile territory. So what can we do? Well, we can be the hands and feet of Christ in the midst of the situation. Whatever that looks like for us, right? For Christians who live along the border, that means probably finding ways to, to go out and, and make sure that migrants have water and shelter. Whether they, whether they politically agree with what they're doing or not, they are children of God who are dying of thirst in the desert, right? I mean, Jesus would be out there with a water bottle comforting them first and foremost. We're not down there. We can't really do that. What can we do? What can we do? I'm going to leave you with that thought. Because I can't tell you, right, in, in, your, in your specific situations, I can't tell you what it is you can do right now to be the hands and feet of Christ, to be the truth teller, to be the, the, the people proclaiming the word of God to a stubborn nation. I can't tell you what that looks like for you individually. You're going to have to sort that out on your own. So I'm going to leave you with that. And we'll be back with another podcast next week. God bless.